middle of the country, but not middle of the road opinions. It's the podcast dedicated to sports in the air capital of the world. Wichita, Kansas, and beyond. With Tommy Castor and Weston Mills, this is Keeper of the Games. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Keeper of the Games. We are the wildly underqualified, yet mildly entertaining podcast all about sports in the air capital of Wichita, Kansas, and beyond. I'm Tommy Castor. He is Weston Mills, and we are back for another episode. You know what? We were trying to figure out what to call this episode, Weston. It's not really an emergency podcast because nothing like crazy has happened to warrant an emergency podcast, but we'll call it a bonus episode. You know, we haven't done two episodes in one week since the coronavirus pandemic hit. That was our original goal with this podcast was to do two episodes a week. And this is the first time we've done that since like March. Uh, And, but here we are, there's a lot to break down. We wanted to come to you while these thoughts and ideas are fresh in our minds about what's happened on the gridiron in both pro and college ranks over the last 72 hours. So Weston, how are things going, man? Yeah, going good. It's Sunday, man. Football's back on. And uh, I know I'm going to give a little preview for the show here. We're going to have a, a wonderful, and I think the word that we're pretty set on is rant uh, from guest appearance, uh, Blake Cripps. But I'm going to start with my own little rant because okay. I sat down today. There is nothing more. I mean, I love. obviously, you know, I'm a diehard Chiefs fan, love Chiefs games, but I love Sundays when the Chiefs have already played because I can just enjoy the red zone in its entirety all day long. Set down this morning to realize that Sling and NFL Network or in the NFL are in a dispute and the NFL Network has been removed from Sling and I don't even get the red zone channel. Just talk about a way to just ruin my Sunday, getting me off on a bad note. So I don't know whatever's going on there, but they need to get that fixed cuz I got to have the red zone channel stat. I'll tell you, though, that breaking news, late breaking, apparently NFL Network and NFL Red Zone have reached a deal with Sling and Dish Network just in the nick of time for week one games. Uh, Now, that's according to awfulannouncing.com that, you know, this carriage dispute is, uh, I guess, done. They were able to reach some sort of deal. Now, I don't have Sling TV, so I I don't know that for sure, but you'll have to check and, and see if you can actually... Uh, get games back again on, on Sling TV. But I can totally understand how that would put a huge dent in your weekend not being able to watch NFL games. Also, I'm curious now when that actually broke because like, I'm just always up early on the weekends and it was this morning when I was kind of tinkering with it and didn't have it. And who knows, had I just checked closer to game time, <laughs> I would just had thrown in the towel about, you know, nine o'clock this morning that I just wasn't gonna be able to watch the red zone because I was reading up on it and everything. And boy, I probably could have been watching it today. Well, you know what? Here's the thing. And this is for our listeners that are, are, are taking in this episode. You're getting an opportunity to listen to a podcast where both Weston and I are pissed off for, for different reasons. Like you're pissed <laughs> off about the NFL red zone. I'm pissed off because I'm in a, a survivor pool for the NFL and uh, I get four picks each year and I use two of my picks for the Indianapolis Colts who lost. I use two of my picks for the Philadelphia Eagles who lost and I'm out. I'm completely out of the survivor pool in week one. Uh, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm pissed off for a different reason than you are, but uh, I think we're going to be able to unleash today on this episode and be able to channel some of that inner rage and get that out, you know, in the form of talking about our opinions on uh, what we've seen on the field over the last three days or so. I want to remind everybody to hit subscribe. That way, anytime we have a brand new podcast, you'll get a notification. That's important for like this episode because it's not on our traditional 
until Thursday morning. It's a bonus episode. So you want to get a notification to know that, hey, we actually dropped a brand new episode. You can listen to us on all major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, basically anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast. You can also watch full episodes on YouTube and on Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games, also on our website at cogpod.weebly.com. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at cogpod. That's at K-O-G-Pod. Okay, now, got that all the, out all the way. Um you know, for the last 24 hours, Weston, we're going to start with the bad before we get into the good. The last 24 hours or so, maybe less than that, because the game didn't get over until like 1 a.m. last night. I've been thinking about what I want to say and what we want to discuss when it comes to the absolute embarrassment on the gridiron with the Kansas Jayhawks against Coastal Carolina on Saturday night in front of a nationally televised audience. Before I give my opinion, I know you've had the opportunity to think about it as well. If you could just encapsulate what you saw in just a few sentences, and we're going to go back and forth on this. We're going to talk about this for quite a while, I think, because there's a lot to unpack. Just encapsulate your overall feelings towards what you saw on Saturday night for KU. Yeah, for me, I think kind of the way I would summarize it almost felt like a tale of two halves, which often when you say that, it, you know, it, it insinuates bad, bad one half, then you wake up good in, in the other. And it's not so much that there were bad in both halves from Kansas, but it was it was two different problems. The first half, that to me was the in, just flat out embarrassment for that football program. They looked unprepared. They looked uninterested. They flat out looked like they were the school that was being paid to come in and play this game. And and they just were just flat out, not as athletic, not as talented that the players just shouldn't even been on the field with coastal Carolina. That's how bad the first half was. They looked just like they had no business being out there in the second half. There was a, a, a separate different problem. They come out, they're playing obviously a, a lot better, but, in-game adjustments were killing them. And I I guess I was I was so frustrated with the first half that maybe I wasn't watching closely enough to have any idea if they were doing it by them. Sorry, I mean Coastal Carolina was doing the same things that they were doing in the second half that they didn't adjust at halftime or if they said, hey, Kansas is going to adjust at half, so we're going to come out with a new plan. But either way, it doesn't make any difference to me because in particularly what I'm talking about, that the Coastal Carolina defense was stunting. They were bringing blitz. They were bringing pressure. They're moving guys around. They're putting nine, eight, nine in the box. And there was just no adjustment from Coach Deerman calling the plays. And and that's where, again, and I kind of I, I want to mention because I don't know what I missed was, was, was he not having in-game adjustments or did they just flat out not make any adjustments in the first at the first half because they had to be so focused on telling those guys to wake the hell up you know, and come out and play a football game that they couldn't even get to those adjustments at halftime, which that's not really an excuse. You're still, you know, the coaching staff and you got to make that, but that could be more part of the problem. And so I, I guess I've kind of got long winded on my summary, but to me, it was almost a tale of two different halves. They had a, a solely different problem in the first half than what they had in the second half, um, but flat out just an embarrassment for the program. Yeah, in case you didn't watch or didn't hear about the abomination on Saturday night, the final score was Coastal Carolina 38, the University of Kansas 23. Uh, I think it's fitting, Weston, that this loss for Kansas was number 100 on the dot since Mark Mangino was fired from the University of Kansas. Now, I'm not, I'm not one of those 
Jayhawk fans uh, that just constantly pines for the Mark Mangino days. Now, those were some those were some great years for sure. It's been over a decade. He's gone. He ain't coming back. It's time to try to find a way somehow, if it's at all possible, to revive this program. And it hasn't mattered what has been done over the last decade or a half. So far, nothing has worked. You know what? The the loss uh, on Saturday night against Coastal Carolina, in my opinion, was the most embarrassing moment for the University of Kansas football program in probably the last five years. And that includes a stretch when David Beatty was head coach for four years where he only won six games in, in that entire span. I would rank this loss more embarrassing than the Coastal Carolina loss a year ago. I would rank this loss more embarrassing than the loss against North Dakota State by a score of six to three. I believe that was in 2010. I would rank that this loss on Saturday night the most embarrassing loss in at least the last five years, if not the last 10 years. The reason for that is because in those previous instances, expectations have been pretty low. You know, you're talking back in 2010 with Turner Gill and the decline was on at that point and the team was a shell of its former self. You look at the Coastal Carolina loss a year ago. Les Miles is brand new. He's still got David Beatty's players, a majority of them on the roster this year. I'm not saying expectations were high for the Jayhawks, but I'm saying that you at least thought, okay, the Jayhawks have revenge on their mind. They lost to Coastal Carolina one year ago in their building. They get a chance to completely redo that. They get a chance to completely wipe the slate clean. And you would have thought that this team would have come out guns blazing and they did the exact opposite. They looked sleepy. They looked uninterested. They looked completely lethargic. They looked like they had no idea what the playbook said. There were no adjustments by the coaching staff. And on top of that, almost every single player on that Coastal Carolina team was just flat out better than the Jayhawks were at almost every position. Coastal Carolina was just better than them, out-hustled them, out-worked them, looked more physical, looked faster, uh, looked more crisp and precise in the routes they were running and the plays they were calling. Kansas was completely outclassed in every phase of the game on Saturday night, which is why I make this the most embarrassing moment in the last probably decade for Kansas football. Yeah, and, and so I, I'm going to kind of have a two two-part response to you here because so the first thing and kind of want to circle back with what you're talking about because I do think I mean this is an incredibly embarrassing loss and kind of back to what I'm talking talking about here as well with the first half second half the first half that was on less miles let's make no mistake about it when your team doesn't come out to play and yes there's incredibly unprecedented circumstances of this game this season everything but obviously that didn't stop Coastal Carolina and when you're the head coach your job is to prepare for that as best as you can. And that was not done. They, they just came out flat. They were not ready. They did not, whatever. And I say this coming from, you know, as a former college player myself, of course, there always needs, I mean, the players are the ones who have to get it done. And they didn't get it done, but that, but it still starts with the head football coach. He's the one that is, you know, 
puts them in the direction and, and gets them going. Now, the second half, that was on Brent Deerman, in my opinion. Now, they played better in the second half, and that could have been Les Miles waking them up at halftime or whatever. And, and I want to say this, too, because I really like Brent Deerman. I, I think this is set up, assuming Les Miles can get this going in a, in a right direction. Now, I'm not necessarily saying they win the Big 12 or anything, but basically what I mean is he doesn't get fired. I think Brent Deerman is is they're setting it up for him to take over for Les Miles when he's ready to. Oh, for sure. Yeah, without a doubt. And I really like Brent Deerman, but he missed in that second half. Um, so that's kind of my, my step one response. Now, going back to the you know embarrassing, most embarrassing loss in the last 10 years, you know, I, I'm not even disagreeing with you, but I think I still think there's I'm going to bring a message of hope here because every program from the top down, Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, even, you know, you can think of like Kansas State that, you know, we're not talking national championships, but, but a, a dang good, solid program. They all and we're going to get to the K-State loss have embarrassing losses. So what I, I guess my point of that being is I don't necessarily see this loss as a step back or me saying I no longer have faith that Les Miles can get it corrected. I mean, I'm not, it certainly obviously didn't make me think, Oh, they're, they're still fine. They're going to get it corrected. But I guess ultimately I just don't think that this loss necessarily is making me panic on the direction of the program and where it's going to go. Now, of course, if we see this week three, we see this week four, they don't want a big 12 game. Of, Of course we're, you know, that's, Hey, put up the red flags, what's going on. That's a bigger deal. But every program has an embarrassing loss, but it's on a sliding scale, right? So like Ohio State's embarrassing loss is not going to be the same as Kansas when they're in a rebuilding mode. Their embarrassing loss comes at the hands of a of a, of a uh, group of five Sunbelt school in Coastal Carolina. Um, and, and that's what you had here. Who hasn't beat another FCS or I'm sorry, FBS school other than Kansas. And now they have two wins against Kansas. I'm going to blow holes in your argument because, you know, I agree with you that every program has an embarrassing loss. But for programs like Alabama, for programs like Ohio State, LSU and the like, those embarrassing losses are anomalies. They're once in a blue moon, they're few and far between for Kansas. These embarrassing losses come over and over and over again. And the fan base, they, they look at this program and they think, how much lower can we go? And then miraculously, the Jayhawks find a way to go even lower. And th- there is something culturally wrong with this program that extends. I'm not, I'm not moving the blame away from Les Miles and the coaching staff and the players and, you know, the administration. But I'm saying that culturally overall, there is an overarching issue or problem with this, you know, deep rooted, deep seated issues with this program that are contributing to this. And it just, it continues to happen over and over and over again to the point to where the fan base, I think just gets so beaten up over and over because they, they want to, they want to find something to hope for. They want to find something to cling on to. They're not asking for much. I told people before, look, as a Kansas fan, I'm not looking for a national championship. I'm not looking for a big 12 championship. I'm not even looking for a new Year's six bowl. I'm looking to maybe go 500, maybe get to one of the low level, low level bowls every once in a while. That's all I'm looking for. And, you know, I mentioned that, 
the loss on Saturday night was the 100th loss for the KU football program since Mark Mangino was fired. They've won 21 games. They're 21 and 100 since Mark Mangino was fired. Find me something to hope for. There's nothing there. So I know that you want to give a message of hope, but as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing to hope for. Well, the message of hope is that it's not this loss doesn't put us in a different direction because here's the thing. Here's what it comes down to in college football. All that other stuff, what the fans think, what the administration's doing, what mark the college football program does not matter. College football is solely about can you recruit? Can you bring in high level players to this program? And we're only in the second process of, you know, less miles recruiting. And there's nothing to say that this loss has hampered continuing to bring in his guys. I have always been a believer in there should be no college football with the exception, of course, some sort of scandal or something like that, that should be fired within four years of becoming at a new job. Because it is, I just, to me, I think the coaching is, of course it's important, but not in college. It is purely about the talent of player you can bring in because you could look at things like last night. Like there is such a disparity. It's not like college basketball where the mid majors typically can compete because boy, there's just a lot of good talent out there. And, and really you can scheme things up when you have 22 players that have to contribute. You've got to have a You've got to have talent and a lot of it. It can't be we've brought in one or two. You've got to have 22 guys that are all at a higher level talent. So I guess my focus more is because, I again, I agree with you on, on the amount of how embarrassing this loss is. It's not great. Um, but ultimately, as long as the recruiting is still on track, I'm not. my thought would be that this loss doesn't necessarily move us backwards. Weston, you alluded to it at the very beginning of the program uh, that we have a, a special guest on this show. Now, we've had the voice of the Newman Jets, Blake Cripps, join us for a couple of different episodes. He, he couldn't join us for this episode, but he did send in some audio because the one thing that I know about Blake Cripps is that he is a diehard Kansas Jayhawks fan and has been a diehard, a diehard Kansas Jayhawks fan for a long time. You know, he attended the University of Kansas. He supports the, t- the teams, the programs. He, you know, bleeds crimson and blue. Uh, we wanted to get his thoughts on the debacle, the travesty, the abysmal performance on Saturday night from the University of Kansas. And I've had the opportunity to listen to this. Uh, Weston, you have not. So when we get done with this, it's a few minutes long, but it's it's well worth the listen. Uh, when we're through with this, I want to get your take uh, on Blake's opinions and his commentary on the KU game. So here is the voice of the Newman University Jets, Blake Cripps, on the KU game Saturday night. You know, I've tried to record this so many different times, and I never feel like I truly encapsulate what I'm trying to say. When you're this bitter and this disappointed with the state of a program that went 12 and 1, won the Orange Bowl in 2007, won three bowl games in four years, went to four bowl games in six years, just two decades ago. In the teens, you go back to the aughts, KU football actually mattered. 
And it's not like KU football was just awful. I remember feeling how bad the Terry Allen years were and thinking, gosh, KU football is terrible. Little did I know, little did I know what the 2010s would have in store for me as a KU football fan. It doesn't matter what happened against Coastal Carolina. And that's what I've come to realize. It doesn't matter, even though... A Sunbelt team had better players at 21 out of 22 positions. It doesn't matter that the play calling was so idiotic that Puka Williams, our best player, had only 12 carries despite the fact that he had zero lost yards. It doesn't matter that the KU defense only forced one lost rushing yard against the Chanticleers. It doesn't matter. You know what matters? Look at the record. What did I say with the Knicks a couple of weeks ago? The Knicks are who they are. KU football, we are who we are at this point. Look at the record. What does Greg Marshall always say? At the end of the year, you are defined by a score and a record. That's what you're judged by. KU football, since Mark Mangino left, since 2010, added up. 21 and 100. This is not a Les Miles problem. It's not even a Jeff Long problem, hypothetically. This is a University of Kansas problem. And I don't know if it's from the Chancellor, if it's from the Board of Regents, but this is a problem in Lawrence, Kansas. You cannot tell me that University of Kansas football can't figure it out with the money that they have poured into that program. You cannot tell me that they can't figure it out in a decade. KU football hasn't won more than three games in a decade, over a decade now. We haven't had a coach for more than four seasons. And the only guy that we had was David Beatty, and he only won six games in four seasons. Back-to-back three-win seasons, that looks like a paradise now. It doesn't look like we have a prayer of winning another game the rest of this season if we play like we did against Coastal Carolina. Central Florida came from nothing and went to a New Year's Six game. Central Florida. How can they figure that out in such a short amount of time? And we are no closer to getting back to a BCS-level game, to a New Year's Six game today than we were the day we hired Turner Gill. We are no closer. We have wasted a decade of money, of resources, and of our fans' time trying to get back to where we were in 2007. New Year's Six. We talk about the New Year's Six. How stupid is that? How about we win six games? Are we any closer to winning six games? you think we're going to win six games next year? Do you think we're going to win six games the year after that? This program is trash. We are the Knicks of college football. We fail at everything that we do. You cannot trust any decisions from our leaders. If you believe anything that Jeff Long says about this football program, are you paying attention? 
They're 0-2 against Coastal Carolina. And in both games, Coastal Carolina had better players. At 21 out of 22 positions, they were better. They're better than us. Period. If KU would have won that game, that would have been an upset. Kansas football is the New York Knicks of college football. We make terrible decisions. Nothing that we do works. The only difference is people actually care about the Knicks. The Knicks actually have a marketable brand. KU football, please. I don't want to say we should cancel the football program, but we should be a volleyball school. I'm dead serious. We should pump a percentage of the money we're putting into football, give it to Ray Bouchard, and let's get the volleyball program back to the Final Four. Ray Bouchard is actually a good coach. Those ladies actually know how to compete and win at the highest levels. They were in the Final Four over the last decade. What's KU football gotten us? Let me read it to you again. 21 and 100. 21 and 100. We stink. It's inexcusable how bad KU football is. At this point, is there is there a reason to think that KU's ever going to beat Kansas State again? If we start playing Missouri, is there any reason to think we're ever going to win the border war again? Is there a reason to think we're ever going to have a winning season again? New Year's six, six games. Let's see if we can win three games this year. We're so terrible. What a waste. What a huge waste of time. I, I, I don't have anything else to say. KU sucks. The, the football program is terrible. We're a volleyball school. Go Chiefs. All right, that's Blake Cripps, voice of the Newman University Jets, an incredibly impassioned rant or, or commentary uh, about the uh, the debacle on Saturday night with the Jayhawks against Coastal Carolina. Your reactions to that? You know, I mean, I understand the the frustration from from fans and and people that are you know closely associated with the program, but. I, I hate to be a broken record. I just, to me, I think this is an overreaction to a loss that is embarrassing. Um, But nonetheless, as long as players are still coming in and the program continues to grow, frankly, the wins and the win and loss record this year doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't affect the continued growth of bringing in talented players. Now, with that being said, of course that does affect it to some degree, um, but I, again, I just, you know, I think it, bringing in talented players and continuing that growth is, is the most important thing here. And, and I just have to stick with that. But I want to touch on one thing that Blake said that just really has uh, just resonated with me when, you know, he, he brought up what Greg Marshall says. At the end of the day, you are defined by your record and by the score on the scoreboard at the end of the game. That is what you are defined by. As, as great as recruiting is and how essential and how important recruiting is, that's not how you're defined. There's not a single fired coach out there that people will say, 
oh yeah, I mean, he lost a ton of games, but Manny was a great recruiter. Like that doesn't matter. What matters is your record. What matters is the score at the end of the game. And I, I agree with Blake when he says we are no closer now than we were a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago to turning this dumpster fire around. We're, we're no closer to it. And Saturday night was a perfect reminder of that. And any sort of hope, any sort of expectations that this fan base has, I feel like was, it was just completely shattered and just a, a stark reminder, a slap in the face reminder that this football program is no closer to turning things around. But see, here's my thing. If you if you had expectations that Kansas was gonna be this was the season it was turning around, I think you're a fool. Like to beat Coastal Carolina is it, not an overwhelming expectation. Listen, and I agree. I agree. Again, I'm saying it's a bad loss, but that's not how you define the growth of this program. If we were to run the table, you're not going to look back and be like, "This was embarrassing." He should have. He should have been fired after that. Because, but then they went and ran the. I mean, we're not there yet. Like, ultimately, turning this program around is going to take more than two years of less miles. It's probably going to take four or five. And you know what? I disagree with them on the fact that we are closer because we didn't have three star recruits signing with Kansas. We just flat out didn't. And next year's recruiting class, and again, I get it. It's all hypotheticals. And, and to your point, this is exactly what you're saying, and I, I understand it, is at some point you're defined by wins and losses, right? Just like you're saying. So some point the re- recruiting has to turn into winning. I'm just saying I think anybody was a fool to think that Les Miles was going to do it in two years. And really any coach on the planet being able to turn around this program, because you guys are both right, it's in a state of shambles. And it's going to take two or four to five to maybe six years to be able to get back to a high level. And that's, I mean, and that is where the embarrassing part lands that we let it get to this point. But my, my counter to that, and I understand what you're saying, but my counter to that is what happens in four or five or six years if it doesn't get turned around and then we're four or five or six more years behind the eight ball and even further behind the curve on trying to turn things around. And we've dug ourselves an even deeper hole. My my criticism is that what we saw on Saturday night is terrifying to me in the thought of what if this is the way it's going to be for the next several years before we try to make another change. I mean, it's a, it's a cruel broken record that just, it doesn't, it just doesn't end. You know, I, I don't know. I, my biggest, my biggest complaint with the overall culture. I mean, think of North Carolina football for a second. Now they weren't in as bad a shambles as Kansas was, but they weren't a good football program a couple of years ago. Mac Brown came into North Carolina within two years. He's turned that program around. Now that's apples and oranges as far as where the North Carolina program was compared to Kansas. But at the same time, it's not unheard of to be able to turn a program around in just a couple of years. And by turn it around, I don't mean all of a sudden you're ranked in the top 25. I don't mean all of a sudden you're going to bowl games. I mean, turn it around to where you can see You can demonstrate on the field some sort of growth. And what I saw on Saturday night 
was not only no growth from a year ago or when David Beatty was the coach, but I saw a reversal where they were even worse than what I had seen on the field a couple of years ago. I know that a lot of those guys that are on the field are not less miles guys at this point, but they looked worse than they did during the David Beatty era who won four games, won six games in four years. It is completely inexcusable. But I guess that's that's my point. And that I guess from the beginning, when I say, look, this is an embarrassing game and programs have embarrassing games, no matter where they're at on the sliding scale of program dominance, like we're on the shit end of the program dominance sliding scale. So our embarrassing losses are going to look even worse. But that doesn't mean that things are stepped back in the wrong direction. And here and this is, I guess, maybe just where we have a fundamental fundamental disagreement on the philosophy of how to run a college program, because I am a of, and this is what I mentioned earlier. I am of the belief that if you let's let's just say you were if you're advocating, and I'm not, you haven't said it. I don't know that you are, but that less miles should be done at the end of this year based on the way things are going. And obviously, I know you're not suggesting if they were to win out or something stupid, but nonetheless. I would still advocate that letting him go, you're just you're guaranteeing another two years at a minimum of being shitty. So you have to you have to let time go by for every head coach. And I don't care if it was less miles or he would have got some, you know, wide receiver coach from a program, you know, in the sec to come in and take over that no one had heard their name. I would still be advocating for, you have to give them a significant amount of time to bring in their guys, turn around their culture. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to bring that point while also saying, Yes, this was embarrassing, but even as you're growing, you're still going to have embarrassing losses. I get what you're saying, and I I am not, I'll be honest, I'm not at a place, my Twitter feed might say otherwise, but I'm not at a place where I'm advocating for less miles to be fired. I might be a little bit closer than I was a week ago, but I'm not there yet. It's going to take a lot more you know, for that to happen. But here's my fundamental concern. And, and, and I've said this to people for a year now, uh, and I've alluded to it somewhat on this show. I mentioned it a little bit ago about the overall culture of the football program at the university of Kansas. I'm not inside those walls. I don't know what goes on. And I think you can make an argument that what I'm about to say does not impact negatively the performance on the field at all. I understand that, but it does concern me that the athletic director at the university of Kansas and the head coach at the university of Kansas, one of their top priorities when they arrived at Kansas was to film a reality television show to be aired on ESPN+. That was one of their top priorities. It wasn't the only top priority, but it was one of their top priorities. When you have a dumpster fire of a program, I understand wanting to document it. I understand wanting to get eyes on it to watch the rebuild, but nobody freaking cares. They want to see you win on the field. That should be the only focus. And as soon as I realized that this program was being turned into a three ring circus by the administration and by the head coach at that point, that's that, that sent red flags to me. 
And so again, I'm not advocating for the removal, but you have to acknowledge the fact that there had been some misplaced priorities. And on top of that, you have an athletic director in Jeff Long who specifically was hired for football. You have a national championship winning head coach who came in specifically to rebuild the program, not to film a reality show. I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that the miles to go program contributed to the loss. But what I am saying is that I think that there are some misplaced priorities. See, and and I'm going to sound like a broken record because I even think that goes back more into my point where things like that are getting eyes on the program where they're trying to re-put a light on for that 17, 18 year old playing college football or playing high school football that now goes, oh yeah, I saw Les Miles. I mean, you know, and heck, Les Miles been out of the game. Like, you know, those younger kids may not even really have a great memory of Les Miles or remember him. And I just think that's more, they were what they're trying to do is rebrand that program. And I actually liked the move. That's That just, I guess, shows how differently we're viewing what they should be doing to get back. Because to me, and again, I'm a broken record, I just think this is solely about getting better talent in. And at some point, which I haven't put out there, which probably makes me a bad arguer for doing this, but at some point, that talent has to turn into wins. I'm just not at any level of concern that that time should be now yet. Well, the bottom line is that the Jayhawks lost in embarrassing fashion uh, during a game that they should have won, a game that, you know, I recognize Blake saying that had they won, it would have been, I guess, an upset. But at the same time, they were favored by a touchdown in that game against Coastal Carolina. They had all the motivation in the world to come out strong, to come out and deliver um some revenge from a year prior against the same team. You know, the, the saddest thing about it to me, Weston, is that I don't know if you saw on social media the videos of the Coastal Carolina players celebrating after the game, and they took a sledgehammer to a rock chalk Jayhawk rock uh, and were, you know, celebrating. And, you know, normally as a Kansas fan, I would have probably looked at that and gotten a little bit pissed off. Uh, I couldn't even get pissed off. I'm like, yeah, like, Kansas deserves that. You go ahead and destroy that rock. This is an embarrassment Um, that, you know, it's I, as a Jayhawk fan, I'm, I'm advocating for the fans that are saying this has been completely unacceptable from day one. And there were legitimate expectations when Kansas made the decision to bring in a well-respected football athletic director and a national championship winning coach. I know it takes time, but the team looks worse now than they did before these guys even showed up. I, I don't know. Again, to me, it, this is Les Miles' 13th game at the University of Kansas. 13th. I mean, that's. I, I guess I'm just coming from a place of – this is bad. This loss was embarrassing. But what did what do you expect? This is where the program is still at, and they're going to have bad losses. And this is a bad loss for where they're at because where they're at still should not be losing to Coastal Carolina, right? I mean, we're all in agreement there. They're, they, just even being in a in the, a Power Five conference is where you're at of not losing to a, a team that hadn't beaten an FBS in uh, you know however long you you'd, you'd mentioned that stat earlier, but. You know, I, I mean, end of the day, you know, I, I think hopefully there's some growth. You know, Puka looks good. I really liked Miles Kendrick. Actually, Tom, Thomas McVitie was looking was looking good. And then I think he got hurt. I know there was a lot of people saying, why are we keep flipping quarterbacks around? And I think the, that last switch was actually because McVitie got hurt. And I never actually heard anything. But Miles Kendrick looked good when 
when he came in. Um, but they just that second half to me, they just missed some adjustments. They, you know, they were bringing a lot of pressure, putting eight and nine in the box. And I wanted Dearman just freaking run a slant behind that or get your running back out of the backfield and replace where those guys are coming from. And it just, which is such basic stuff. And I, I don't, I, it was beyond me why they weren't able to do that. Um, did you catch the onside kick though? I don't know if you stayed up late yeah. enough to see that. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, like I'm super pissed that they missed that call, but I mean, ultimately, Kansas has much more things to worry about than right. missed ball. But still, I was really disappointed that they missed it. But ultimately, I think there's some things to build on. And, and so ultimately, if we're looking for the program to get better, you know, you got to see some improvement in, in the in, in Big 12 play now because that's that's where we're, we're at. Well, and I, I will say I, I I was disappointed in Brent Deerman, you know, a guy who is supposedly this, you know, offensive savant, you know, this genius, you know, on the offensive side of the ball. I agree with you. Had a really hard time making adjustments, um, you know. So that that that's concerning to me. Um, hopefully, he gets that turned around. The, the bottom line is that they, you know, the, the, this team, this program needs to take, you know, a, a long, hard look at themselves. They have an off week. They don't play this coming weekend before they travel to Baylor to figure out what they need to do to at least win a game. And right now, I think it's going to be difficult for them to win any Big Twelve game. Although the Big Twelve overall didn't look good, um, you know, uh, yesterday or Saturday night um, in their action, especially against the Sun Belt schools. But um, it's going to be tough for Kansas to win a bowl game. The final thing I'll say before we move on uh, about Kansas is that the culture altogether. I think if it doesn't start to turn around with less miles, if it doesn't start to turn around with Jeff long, the biggest thing that can be done, the best thing that can be done is for these major boosters and these major donors that give hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not more to that program, they need to start talking with their wallets. You know, the, the old saying goes money talks and everything else walks, right? Um, you know, the, the only way that you can advocate for change at that level is for the major donors to start, you know, raising hell. And up to this point, the major donors have been very, very content with mediocrity or worse. They really haven't raised a stink a whole lot. You hear all the time about these other major programs that, you know, probably more so than they need to are vocal about coaching changes or they're vocal about improvements in the programs. They're very hands-on. They're very involved. I think sometimes that's to the, de- to the detriment of the program, but in the case of the university of Kansas, the major donors are incredibly passive. They're incredibly quiet. I think in this regard for, for too long, the university of Kansas and the football program, they've coasted, they've coasted off of those donors. They've coasted off of the basketball program and they've never really needed to be challenged to make a change. The fan base and the donors need to be united to actually push for change and improvement. And if that doesn't happen, we're going to keep having at best mediocre football in Lawrence. Well, and that's the trouble with with being a you know a basketball school first, right? Is those boosters don't they probably don't care? You know they right. they're not going to stop. They're going to keep continuing to let their wallet talk in a positive way for the university because they want to be put in those positions of power for the basketball program. And yeah. as long as the basketball program continues to, to contribute, you're, I don't think you're ever going to see boosters saying, no, we're not going to do this. If the football team doesn't, you know, start getting better because they want to be associated with the things that are going on in the basketball program. So you're right. it's just, yeah. I think that's just part of it. You're totally right. At the end of the day, I think we're both in agreement. It was a, a terrible loss uh, for uh, Kansas to start their season. Um, 
you know, I, I think we both kind of wanted to start this show talking about positive things and the Kansas City Chiefs, and we'll get to them in a few minutes. But uh, it just sort of seemed like this was the the right form and the right opportunity to lead the show by talking about uh, that game on Saturday night for the Jayhawks. The other program in the state of Kansas didn't have much better of a time on Saturday. The Kansas State Wildcats, they fell at home to Arkansas State, the Sun Belt. They had a great weekend. Uh, of course, uh, Louisiana Tech beat Iowa State, so the Sun Belt went 3-0 and against Big 12 teams. Uh, the Red Wolves of Arkansas State beat the Wildcats 35-31. to uh, It was the first time that Kansas has lost a home opener since 2013. Uh, the Red Wolves won the game on a touchdown catch from Jonathan Adams with 38 seconds remaining, and then they were able to hold uh, on defense and kept the Wildcats out of the end zone to end the game. Uh, you know, Ultimately, you know, I, I sort of feel bad that last week, Weston, we spent so little time talking about both KU and K-State on this program because I think we both thought, yeah, both teams are probably going to win. Uh, yeah. There's really not a whole lot to talk about. And then obviously that didn't happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, the thing about Arkansas State, though, <laughs> this is just a very interesting game because, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you saw Arkansas State and it kind of came out really after the game more so that they were down nine starters between COVID and then just uh, injuries. But I tell you what, that team has some serious talent. And in particularly Jonathan Adams, Jr. That guy is incredible. He's going to be playing on Sundays. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. K-State just had no answer for his size skill. I don't know that they'll see a wide receiver like that in the big 12. I'm serious. He was that incredible. Um, But you know, boy, other than that, I mean, this is, this is almost just as equally as bad of a loss for Kansas State as it was Kansas. They're in a better position because it is such a consistent program that, you know, if they continue, they they go six and six or, you know, or probably, I guess, more like eight and four or so, like they almost always do. The Arkansas State loss is going to be kind of shuffled away because, it, you know, they continue to be the consistent program that they are. But, you know, I, I – I think they definitely struggled a little bit, I I think really in the trenches, which is interesting because often with the smaller schools, that is a lot of times where it's just hard for them to compete with the power five because you just don't have, you know, you can bring in big offensive linemen, but they just don't move as well. Same with the defensive linemen. Maybe you can get a big old guy, but he just doesn't move well, or you got a small guy, but then he's not big. You know, he moves well, but he's not big enough. So it was interesting that to me, it was the trenches, the Kansas state offensive line and they're young. So that I think to some degree, that's to be expected. Um, their center and I'm uh, his name is I'm drawing a blank. He's out of Wichita actually. Um, he got hurt and I missed most of the game and I I didn't get to watch a little bit of it so I don't know if he came back and I missed that but he was out so they had to move their guard to center and that offensive line just really uh, had a- Noah, Noah Johnson is his name. That's right. That's right. Yep. Um, and they just really had a tough time and then really on the flip side the Kansas State defensive line you know out you know outside of uh, you know their guy and Wyatt, Wyatt Hubert who had a sack. He had a pressure. And if you look at it, um, you know, the Kansas State had three sacks for a team, Arkansas State, that really likes to throw the ball. But what concerns me is the quarterback hurry stat, which it's not a perfect stat and it never has been. But the, to, uh, the hurry stat essentially is if you make contact or disrupt the quarterback and the pass is incomplete, they'll give you a, a, a hurry. That's the stat. And they only had two 
on the day. Kansas State only had two on the day, which is not good when you're playing a team that, in theory, you should be able to dominate in the trenches. So I'm sure what Arkansas State did was, you know, they focused on, hey, we're gonna we're gonna try to shut down Wyatt Hubert as much as possible. We're gonna throw we're gonna throw guard and tackle at him. We're gonna chip him with the tight end. We're gonna chip him with the running back and make those other guys beat us. And no one really stepped up to stop the pass. And I, I think that's something that they need to kind of figure out moving forward because that's going to be the game plan in the Big 12 for every single offense that comes up, you know, against this Kansas State defense. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. And and you touched on uh, Jonathan Adams Jr. And, and I agree, he's going to be one of the top, if not the top wide receivers that the Wildcats will face all season, even in the Big 12. He had eight catches for 98 yards and three touchdowns on just 10 targets. He caught 80% of the passes that were thrown his way for three scores in that game. Uh, you You know, you mentioned that this is a guy that, he's probably going to be able to play on Sundays. And I think some of that is going to be be because of the fact that he got to play on national television when otherwise, when is Arkansas State ever going to play on the noon kickoff or the 11 a.m. kickoff on Fox? It's yeah. just never going to happen for an Arkansas State team because of COVID, you know, and because of canceled football games. You know, obviously the Wildcats and the Red Wolves were moved up into that big time slot. And uh, Adams definitely lived up to the spotlight uh, and was able to take advantage of that. I think that there are some NFL scouts that otherwise would not have been looking at him or why. Watching him, uh, and he had a huge game against the secondary of Kansas State. I think that there are for sure some concerning things about the the loss that Kansas State had. I, you know, you mentioned the fact that you know it was embarrassing, almost on the level of what the Kansas Coastal Carolina game was, and I do disagree with that because I've got no doubt in my mind that Chris Kleiman's going to be able to get the team you know, back in shape. And, and obviously they're dealing with a lot of injuries and they're dealing with, you know, a, an off season when the whole program was shut down because of COVID and all of this other stuff, all these other distractions that were in place. Chris Kleiman has shown, uh, you know, the, the, the behavior and the, and the power to turn the, the team around and to get them refocused and regrouped. I've got no doubt in my mind that they're going to be just fine come big 12 season. Are they going to win the Big 12? Absolutely not. But I, I think that they'll be solid just like that they were solid last year. So I don't, you know, while this was an embarrassing, kind of an embarrassing loss on national TV for Kansas State, I do think that they'll be able to use that game as a motivating factor to come out and just absolutely um, play great football moving on from that loss. I don't quite have that conviction with the University of Kansas. Yeah, and I, th- I to me, and I, th- I think it's almost just as equally as an embarrassing loss, but that's the state of the programs are so different, right, that it doesn't feel nuclear when Kansas State does have a, a, a flat-out embarrassing loss. It still feels like, okay, look, that sucks, but it's it's one loss still. It doesn't yeah. count for any more losses than just the one. We carry on with what we what we know we've done in years past. And we'll, you know, we'll finish eight and four and we'll go to a bowl, although they're probably not playing twelve games this year, so I that's already screwed up. But we'll go to a bowl game, you know, and, and be just fine. Um you know, and it's and I, and I would be you know a hypocrite to not say the same things about Coach Kleiman as you know with Les Miles. You know, he still needs time to really get the program the way he wants it, and to continue. You know, because his expectation, and when you bring him in, even though Kansas State has had a history of being a very 
above average team, right? Nothing much more than that, but never much less than that either, which is just, they've just been consistently above average. But I think the expectation certainly with, with Kleiman is they're going to go out and be able to compete and get into that cultural ball playoff at some point. And I certainly don't, again, have any reservation that this loss is setting him back on continuing to grow the program in that right direction. Well, things don't get any easier for the Wildcats when uh, they play in two weeks again. Their Big 12 opener is at Oklahoma, um, yeah. you know, which is that, that's going to be tough. Now, obviously, we mentioned before that Kansas travels to Waco to play Baylor in two weeks. We don't know much about the Baylor Bears this season. Um, to my knowledge, they haven't played a, a game yet. So, you know, obviously some some changes down there in Waco. Um, I, I It wouldn't be. Uh, super surprising for you know me to think that both Kansas teams could go zero and two in their first two yeah. games. Um, I, I don't think that would be surprising at all. But like I mentioned before, I just have to reiterate: I've got a lot more faith in Chris Kleiman and the Wildcats getting things turned around for Big Twelve play than I do it, with the state of the of the University of Kansas right now. But uh, you know, it is what it is. Um, definitely not uh, great looks for either team, uh, either major university in the state uh, in week one in their non-conference games. I do have to make a quick correction. Uh, I mentioned that Iowa State lost to Louisiana Tech. That's not correct. They actually played uh, Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns, uh, and lost 31-14. So the Big 12 was 0-3 against the Sun Belt. And before we move on very quickly, how bad did the Big 12 look overall as a whole conference yesterday? Yeah, not good. I mean, you know, they're uh, lucky feels like a wrong word, but of, of all years for the Big 12 to start out so poorly, the Big 12 champs going to get into the college football playoff, assuming that that goes off normally if we don't have a big 10 season and we know we're not having a Pac-12 yeah. season. So they're going to, the, the champion of the big 12 is going to get in. And, and basically that puts you in a position where those losses don't matter as much as they might, might in other years. I mean, obviously Kansas losing and Kansas state losing probably not doesn't affect too much Oklahoma's status, but in a year when you're competing, if they go undefeated and there's five power fives that all ran their conference undefeated, then you know that those little losses do make a difference. But this year, they'll probably get by with that, not ultimately having much of a uh, effect. Yeah. We, you know, we, we've not seen Baylor. We've not seen TCU. Both of their week one games were canceled due to COVID. Uh, but West Virginia, they handled Eastern Kentucky pretty well, 56 to 10. Of course, Oklahoma beat up on Missouri state 48 to nothing. Texas beat UTEP 59 to three. And then the other really close game, Texas tech barely escaped against Houston Baptist 35 yeah. to 33. So four really poor looks for the big 12 in week one. And so as a conference, hopefully, hopefully uh, their member schools can start to turn that around in the weeks to come. Obviously they'll start playing each other. So we'll see how that works when the conference season starts. We have a few minutes left on keeper of the games. We're not doing our trademark Wichita whip around. We're not doing our trademark. Finally funny. We're just talking football on this episode of keeper of the games. And of course we got to finish on a high note, right? We've been pretty negative for the last 54 minutes on this show. We'll end on a positive note with the defending Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs. 
at Arrowhead in week one, defeating the Houston Texans 34 to 20. You know, Weston, really, there's not a ton to talk about with this game. It was just an overall solid performance from the Chiefs. Yeah, and I'm going to go ahead and toot, toot our own horns because you absolutely nailed the Clyde Edwards Hilaire as the MVP of the offense in that game. And I think I absolutely nailed Legereus Sneed being the, well, I guess I said rookie of the year. So he's got a long ways yeah. to go from that, but already looking fabulous. I am uh, ecstatic about where those two are are at already. I mean, you don't get lucky in this league, you know, and I understand there's a lot of game planning, scheming, those kind of things that can lead to high stats. Clyde Edward Blair is a fantastic, he's already showing he's going to be a fantastic running back. Legereus Sneed played incredible week one. And and that was with them. It's not like he hid in that defense, made a play that made you just remember like, oh, hey, he didn't get beat and he knocked up. They attacked him and he stepped up to the challenge and it's going to be important with the Charverius Ward out. So, so happy how the rookies played. Other than that, it's kind of, it would be us a broken record. I mean, Pat played like Pat, Travis played like Travis, didn't see a lot of Hill, but that's what teams are going to try to do. They're going to try to take him away. Um, it, but it doesn't really matter to the chiefs cause they just go, okay, take him away. We'll go to Travis. We'll go to Clyde's Edwards Hilaire. You know, we'll, we'll go to Sammy Watkins. They went to Sammy Watkins quite a bit. Didn't even see much out of McColl, but you know, that'll be there. Um, and really, I think the chiefs made a decision early on. We're not going to show much of the playbook this year. Uh, and they just ran the ball, which was fantastic. You know, you mentioned that we were dead on talking about Clyde Edwards-Alaire and LeJarrius Sneed, but I have to have to jump on your you know back a little bit here um, with one of your predictions when you were talking about the over under, and you said to <laughs> smash that over, smash that over, because uh, what the line was was it fifty four, and that's what it ended on was fifty four. So I, I yes, but I do want to make a point. FanDuel had it at 53 and a half. So I had the over if we're right. you, if you were betting all on right. FanDuel. I just, I really did. I thought I, you know, I was all in on that and I did not expect, you know, them to come out really as flat as they did. And I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, the chiefs, I mean, but you know, I just really thought there'd be more points across the board. Houston just did not look good. And they just, I think Deandre Hopkins is going to be a more significant loss for them than, yeah. than they realized. The Texans offense looked uh, pedestrian at best, except for David Johnson. David Johnson ran the ball great. Uh, I, I thought he looked really, really good sure for the did. Texans. That was about it. And, you know, I thought Deshaun Watson was average at best. Mm-hmm. He he didn't have any wide receivers, you know, show up to be a deep threat at all. You know, Will Fuller was supposed to be that guy and just really didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know what? I thought the to your point about the running game for Kansas City, you know, I – Definitely think that, and I mentioned this on the last episode, that the addition of Edwards Alaire gives the Chiefs the opportunity to be more of a balanced team. So I don't think you necessarily are going to see Pat, uh, you know, throw the ball 35 or 40 times in a game. I don't think you're necessarily going to see him put up a ton of yards. You know, he threw for three touchdowns, but I think he only had like 211 yards through the air because they ran the ball so effectively and efficiently with Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And I think that's going to be, uh, 
you know, kind of the new trend moving forward. And I think that's fine. I don't think you want your franchise half a billion dollar quarterback to be throwing the ball so much. I think you need to have some other weapons, you know, some other people that can have the ball and that can run with it and can and can have a lot of success with it. Yeah, and I, I think you're right, but I think it's more going to be not a play calling balance. And I guess what I mean is the chiefs aren't saying, Hey, we would like to strike a balance between our run and our pass. I think they are reached a point now where they will take whatever the defense wants to give us. And that's what we're going to do. If you're going to only put six in the box, we're absolutely going to give the ball to Clyde Edwards Hilaire. If you're going to try to put seven or eight in the box, absolutely. Pat's going to throw all over the yard. So I think, I think I'm agreeing with you, but I guess maybe not so much just from a set play calling center. And maybe this is what you meant anyways, more from a, we're balanced in the sense that whatever you give us, we're just going to take that and run with it. Um, but we have to, and if you want to give Clyde Edwards Hilaire credit, we've got to stop for a second and talk about Kalechi Yosemite. He was oh, yeah. fantastic yeah. at left guard. I mean, he just looked like a road grader out there. And and I I guess I didn't know quite enough about him coming in. I guess he has kind of a reputation of being a just a big physical. I don't know if you remember Mike DeVito that used to play for Kansas City, played defensive yeah. tackle. Yep. He, he had commented on Twitter saying that uh, Kalechio similarly was – Hands and by by far away the strongest offensive lineman he had ever gone up against. He's just a uh, just a man block, uh, so fantastic to see to see that you know. And then flip side, keep staying in the trenches because you know I like to talk talk about that front seven of Kansas City and really just the front four I think, which is the important thing. They dominated that Texans offensive line, and I don't think that yeah. they're again the stats weren't necessarily there. I think Chris Jones had one and a half sacks. Frank Clark maybe had a half sack, I think, but they were consistently pushing Watson around in the pocket, making him move a little bit. And I also think some of the things that don't show up in the stat books, or it's hard to even see if you're just watching the game live and not watching the film, is the fact that he potentially, or that front four, I think made them call the the, the the whole game plan differently for the Texans because yeah. I don't think they had time and knew they weren't going to have time after the first couple of series to let Will Fuller develop and get downfield and, and do any of that. They had to get that ball out a little bit quicker. So I think their presence really did affect affect the Texans. You know, I, my other point with offensive weapons, you know, and you mentioned them a couple of minutes ago, but Sammy Watkins, uh, he's a, he's definitely a feast or famine receiver. You know, he'll go stretches the games where you don't hear from him at all. And then when you do hear from him, he's going to put up a lot of, a lot of stats for you. And, you know, he's a guy that you were an advocate, Weston, that the Chiefs not you know, not bring him back to move on from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, came, he came up big, uh, at least in the, in this first game for the chiefs. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, obviously I think he's uh, fantastic and, and continuing with the continuity was, I love that. I did not think we were going to be able to get the deal that we got for Sammy Watkins. And I think he ultimately yeah. will be able to go out and get that big deal. And at that point, you've seen where we've already been spending the money and how it's going to get tight in the future. So I love the deal that he got, but with that being said, think about what we didn't see at all is McCole Hardman. I mean, I, I, he, McCole Hardman is not Sammy Watkins, not yet anyways, but I think he could have absolutely slid into that role and produced at a similar clip as what you saw at Sammy Watkins. I think that's kind of more my point about where we are with the wide receivers, when you have the greatest quarterback, you know, in the NFL right now, um, or the, I shouldn't say I, the best quarterback in the NFL right now, uh, 
but they, I mean, the offense looked, looked good. Andy's plate did that little, I don't even know what you'd call that, that slip screen to Travis Kelsey when he had, he had Tyree kill f- run fly motion to the other side, which of course is going to draw defenders Then had Clyde Edwards Hilaire, uh, actually run like a normal screen set out to the left. And then Travis Kelsey slipped in right underneath that to pick up that first down. I think that was, that was pretty early in the first, it was in the first quarter. It's definitely in the first half, Yeah, um, but boy, that was, that was beautiful. Andy Reed uh, play call right there. Well, before we wrap up our discussion on the chiefs, uh, let's talk very briefly about some of the injuries that we saw in that game. Obviously the, the most notable one is Traverius Ward. Uh, he left with a hand injury. It's a fractured hand. Um, it looks like he should be back in a few weeks, depending on how the recovery goes with that injury for Ward. But Weston, that's, um, that's an injury in a secondary core that already has had some question marks. Obviously, Legereus Sneed stepped up big in that first game. But so what do you think will happen moving forward at that position for Kansas City? You know, I, I again with the weird season that we're in, I don't I'd said on Twitter, I think they're going to bring someone in. I don't think it's going to be anything splashy. Not that there's really any names. I guess Prince Akimura kind of has that splashy name because he had some years of being really good. He hasn't really produced overly at a high level recently, uh, but that would maybe be a splashy name. But I think they'll bring in a, a small signing, and it might even just be maybe they like someone on the practice squad, but I think they do sign someone. But I think it's going to have to be Antonio Hamilton, Rashad Fenton, and, and Lajarius Sneed. And then, like I said, that flexibility of moving Honey Badger around and having two safety sets with Sorensen and Juan Thornhill both on the field because they've moved you know, uh, Honey Badger to the to the nickel or whatever, um, but it, it's important because I nobody played overly bad or it didn't seem like it. But I wasn't overly impressed with what I saw out of Antonio Hamilton or Rashad Fenton. They didn't step up or step out. I guess I should say, uh, like at least like Legarius Sneed did. So we'll see how they do in the coming weeks. But I'm hopeful at least with the cornerback position, Traverius Ward should be able to cast that thing up and go pretty quickly. I'm sure he at a minimum needs a week to heal maybe two, but should hopefully you don't have too long of him out. And then we're, you know, getting close to Bashad Breland being back. Well, and I, I have to mention also that my pick for defensive player of the year, uh, Ty- Tyron Matthew, Honey Badger, he set up that pick by Legereus Sneed. So yeah. if it wasn't for him, uh, LJ Sneed wouldn't have had that pick. So, I, you know, I, I'm pretty smart there, I guess. Uh, also, Al- Alex Okrafor and uh, Colin Sanders both suffered injuries uh, in, in the week one game against the Texans. Okafor had a hamstring injury and Saunders with a dislocated elbow. So those were uh, the three main injuries for the Chiefs in week one and then the final thing i'll say about kansas city now obviously their next game in week two is uh sunday afternoon uh in los angeles against the chargers who are one and oh they beat the Bengals 16 13 so they're one and oh and also the new las vegas raiders they are one and oh as well after taking down the carolina panthers on the road uh to start off their season so we're waiting on the broncos game they play monday night football but as of right now three of the four AFC West teams started the season one and zero, and obviously it's a there's a long way to go. Uh, but you, you know, you never know the the confer the the division could be more competitive this year than we've seen in years past. Yeah, I think it'll, it'll definitely be more competitive, but I'm still not quite worried about it. I, you know, I don't think any of those three teams are really ready to compete with Kansas City, but I think all three of them. I well, you saw some growth obviously today out of the Chargers and. Um, out of the, the the Raiders, 
uh, and we'll see the Broncos on Monday, but um, you know, I think you're seeing some growth, but I just don't think they're ready to necessarily compete with the chiefs for the AFC West. It was a weird day in the NFL all across the board. It was just, everything was very all over the place. And, you know, I think we're going to have to settle in and kind of figure out what, what did this off season really do yeah. to teams. I think it's going to take a few weeks to buff out and kind of have an idea of where everybody's at. Cam Newton won his debut in New England. Tom Brady lost his debut <laughs> yeah. in Tampa Bay. Philip Rivers lost his debut in Indianapolis. So uh, Teddy Bridgewater lost his debut in Carolina. So definitely an odd day uh, in the NFL for sure. Before we wrap up uh, this special bonus episode of Keeper of the Games, just a quick shout out to the Kansas City Royals. They're not going to make the playoffs. The season's practically over for them, but they've shown some fight in the last week or so. They're on a six-game winning streak right now. Now, granted, the last couple games they've won were against the worst team in Major League Baseball, the Pittsburgh Pirates. But still, it doesn't matter that the Royals have won six in a row and their record stands at 20 and 28 right now, which is definitely better than it was the last time we talked about them, Weston. Yeah, and I think the most important thing is that you've seen inc- some incredible flashes out of pitchers of the future. Brady Singer had a no-hitter through seven on the night uh, last Thursday yeah. when the Chiefs home opener was trying to bounce back and forth between that. Uh, Keller has been outstanding through another complete game shutout, or not another complete game shutout, but through a complete game shutout tonight and another gym out of him. And then Mondesi's bats coming back around and is, you know, it's looking like he's maybe figuring things out. I mean, I don't think anybody's ready to say he's fixed, but looking a lot better. So the, the pieces for the future are playing well. That's promising. Uh, hope to see the Royals keep, keep the momentum going. I shouldn't have dropped Mondesi in fantasy baseball. I knew I was making a mistake when I did that because pretty much as soon as I did that, you know, he starts to come alive and hit a bunch of home runs. Uh, speaking of fantasy, by the way, I do need to point out to you um, that you might need to mention to your wife that I'm sorry, but I'm kicking her butt in fantasy football <laughs> this week by a large margin. So um, I am I am sorry about that. But, uh, you know, there's no, bring no that mercy up. In, yeah, there's no mercy in fantasy football. Yeah, she'll probably be disappointed that it was mentioned on the podcast. But, hey, that's <laughs> that that's all fair in fantasy football. I agree. There you go. And that's like the one place that I'm actually winning, you know, this entire weekend. So uh, that's the that's the bright spot, the oasis in the desert, if you will. Hey, well, I want to remind everybody uh, for our next episode, uh, which will actually be dropping this coming Thursday. So just a few days from now, uh, we're planning on I believe it's going to be happening. We're planning on having uh, a really awesome interview with Scott Welsh, who is the membership director at Crestview Country Club here in Wichita. Uh, The gang at Crestview, they're gearing up for the Wichita Open on the Corn Ferry Tour which was rescheduled from June to the last weekend of September. So we'll talk to him about the preparations for the Wichita Open, what's going on with all of that, and then some of the things that Crestview has going on uh, in their world. So we're looking forward to that uh, this coming week. And of course, we'll preview uh, the week two game for the Chiefs. We'll, you know, Obviously, it's an off week for both KU and K-State, but we'll talk a little bit more about some prep sports and some other things that are going on uh, in the world of sports in this area. Uh, so I don't know if you, do you have anything else? Weston that you want to touch on on this uh, bonus episode? Well, I don't know if the listeners care about this, but I was just thinking as you're mentioning, Scott's going to hopefully be on the podcast. I've got to scramble that that Friday, so I'm I'm hoping that uh, maybe he can give me some tips and some pointers before I have to go take the take the course and embarrass myself. The, the, it would be the Friday of of when the Wichita Open is. 
Very nice. Well, you know, the cool thing about that course, I played it yesterday uh, and it's in really good shape, you know, getting ready for the tournament. So I'm sure Scott will be able to uh, share some insight on that for sure. Want to remind you very quickly to hit subscribe. That way, whenever we have a new episode, you'll get a notification. Again, you can listen on platforms like iTunes, Google Podcasts and more. You can also watch full episodes on YouTube and Facebook by searching for Keeper of the Games. And of course, you can follow us anytime on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod at K-O-G-Pod. Weston, what is your Twitter handle at WMills94. You can follow me at Tweets from Tommy. We'll see you in just a few days for another episode of the show. For Weston Mills, I'm Tommy Castor. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Keeper of the Games with Tommy Castor and Weston Mills. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and listen on all major podcast platforms like iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Find the podcast and videos on Facebook and YouTube at Keeper of the Games and follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at CogPod. That's K-O-G-Pod. 